on my thing too. All right, everyone. So thanks for joining us again today. Today I am live with SJ Thomason. Did I say your name right? Is that you right? sure did. All right. So I'm live with her today and we're just going to be talking about some arguments for God, mostly the more argument. We're going to talk about the New Testament. We're going to talk about her testimony and a few various other things. So it should be a great time. Thanks for coming on today. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, I guess we'll just get into it. So my first question for you is, how did you come to faith? I uh, Well, I was raised in the Catholic Church, and I went to Catholic grade school and Catholic high school my freshman year. And then I uh, switched over and joined a public school because it was an all-girls Catholic school, and I wasn't really excited about that. So I ended up going to a public school, and I went to public universities and, uh, and graduated eventually. And then I sort of fell away from the faith because I wasn't really happy with what the the priests were doing in the Catholic Church. I didn't. I, I didn't think that they were handling some of those situations very well. I still don't think they're handling it very well. And so most in my family left the church in my early twenties. And then so I sort of waffled around for a couple of decades, a really long time, and wondered whether Christianity were true. And I looked into other faiths, and I thought Eastern faiths were were super exotic and more interesting. And so I started reading a bunch of books from Eastern faiths. And then in my early 40s, what happened was God started, he sort of reached into my life in a way that I, I really couldn't deny. Uh, he started making himself very known to me. <laughs> he gave me all kinds of spiritual experiences. And I started thinking, wait a second, maybe I'm wrong. And I had this issue when I got on a plane and, and I prayed, I, I prayed, I said, you know, God, if, if Christianity is the, the real faith, the real one to believe in, please start giving me signs. Just let me know. I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing. And I got on this plane and I happened to be sitting next to a pastor. And the pastor said, he struck up a conversation with me and he told me he's a pastor. And he said, hey, have you ever read, um, or he said, what do you want to do? What's your, one of your goals? And I said, well, one of my goals is I'd like to read books or I'd like to write books uh, children's books, kind of like C.S. Lewis did, because those are my favorite books. And he said, have you ever read C.S. Lewis's adult books, like Mere Christianity or Great Divorce or Screwtape Letters? And I said, no, I, I haven't. He said, oh, you really should read those. And so I went to read Mere Christianity, and I, uh, as soon as I got to the trilemma, I was sold. That was it. The trilemma was enough for me. The lion, I mean, sorry, the liar, the lunatic, or Lord, or even to add legend, uh, it was enough just looking at that to, to bring me to Christianity. But then also what happened was he on that plane, he said, have you ever read this? And so he read Isaiah 53 to me. And I, I he said, who is that describing? I said, well, that, that's Jesus. That's obviously Jesus. And he said, well, that was written about 700 years before uh, Jesus appeared. And I said, what? <laughs> I didn't even know that. Mm -hmm. I, I never really, in the Catholic church, we never really read the the Old Testament, and I only had this teeny little New Testament in my house. And so so I, I didn't even know that. So I thought that can't be true. I mean, how do Jewish people not see that? I said, is that really in the Jewish scriptures? And he said, oh, yeah, it absolutely is. So I went home and I after I got off the plane, and of course, I double checked. I wanted to make sure he was, and it, it, it's there. So then I found out that a lot of Jewish people, the Jews for Jesus, Isaiah 53 is a clincher for a lot of them. That's why they come to, to faith is because they read Isaiah 53 and that light goes off and they realize that that's Jesus. It's describing Jesus. And so um, so that's that's sort of in a nutshell. And then I started going to a Baptist church and I got um, baptized so I can call myself a born again Christian pretty legitimately because uh, I've been baptized now twice, once when I was an infant and, and then, of course, uh, it, in my early 40s. So uh, so now I'm back in the in the fold and, and I 
I have become fascinated by Christianity. I've started reading up as many books as I can possibly get my hands on. And uh, so I just recently read this book, I just finished this, How Christianity's Changed the World. Uh, I've read The Evidence That Demands uh, a, a Verdict from Josh and Sean McDowell and, and probably about a hundred other books. So, so that's, I, it's kind of a long story, but that's, uh, th that's, those are some of the reasons. Yeah, that's an awesome, it's an awesome story of how you came to Christ. So going into, so what, just starting the, from the beginning here, what convinced you that God existed? I know you just talked about how you just wrote a paper on the moral arguments, and you want to talk about that a little bit. So what convinces you, first off, that God exists? Well, most importantly are my own experiences, my own spiritual experiences. I've had situations where I'll open the Bible, I'll say a prayer, and I'll open the Bible, and I'll land on the exact same page every single time. For, say, nine times out of ten, I land on Luke 24, which is the road to Emmaus. And, and that's so interesting. And so the road to Emmaus basically told us that there were these two people walking right after Jesus had uh, been crucified and they were walking and then Jesus started walking with them, but they didn't initially recognize him. And he uh, directed them to all of the passages in the Old Testament that point to him. And so when we look back to the Old Testament, that's that that I think is I mean, the number one reason I support Christianity is because Jesus resurrected. And if we use what Gary Habermas has called the minimal facts argument, which scholars, even if they're uh, secular atheist scholars, agree to these minimal facts surrounding the crucifixion, that points us to Jesus. For example, uh, we know he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. That's extra biblically supported. Uh, we know that he died. And after three days, his, uh, his apostles had abandoned him. But then after three days, they all came to believe that they had seen the risen Christ and that he stayed with them for 40 days. And so we get that part and just their their bravery. If I look at what they did for, for decades, they preached for Jesus, even though they were being tortured and stoned and crucified. And I think to myself, you know, they had every opportunity to bail and they didn't. And so that in itself is a great reason to believe. But then if we go back to the Old Testament, like what the road to Emmaus, what, what happened there is we look at passages like Daniel 9. Daniel 9 gives us the actual date of Jesus' crucifixion. It doesn't say um, April 3rd in the year 33. It basically says 77, less 7, after this decree of Artaxerxes. And so that occurred uh, exactly 483 years prior to this date. And so we can date it by other passages uh, that correspond to Daniel 9 in the Old Testament. And so, so we know that. And then the other fact is also in the Old Testament, it tells us that the second temple is gonna be destroyed. And so we know that prior to the second temple being destroyed, uh, the savior had to appear in it and it was destroyed in 70. And so we know that the savior had to have come prior to 70. And so it's pretty awesome. And then we even look at the Old Testament, we say, they predicted that that Israel, there would be a, essentially there would be a, um, the temple would be a, around and Israel wasn't going to fall out of favor. Now, Israel had disappeared from the map from the year 70 until 1948. And now Israel's appeared. There's no other country that's quite like that, that, that suddenly after thousands of, or hundred, you know, uh, what is it, 1900 years almost, that suddenly reemerges, resurfaces. And Where so- Where do you say that was in the Bible? That is in um, Malachi, in Mal okay. I forget that. I wanna say it's Malachi 3, 1, if I'm not mistaken, I'll have to look that up. But in, in Malachi, it basically says that the savior is gonna appear. And, uh, and then there's other places that talk about the, 
you know, the, the, uh, in the book of Revelation, for example, and, and some other places, we see the idea of that there will be a temple in Israel and Israel be basically back. And so, okay. so they're talking yeah. about building a third temple now. There's a group that formed themselves. I guess they're kind of a fringe group that call themselves the Sanhedrin now in, in Israel. And they keep talking about forming a third temple. And, and Netanyahu has been talking about that on YouTube. I mean, I've got some YouTube videos showing that. So it's, it's just interesting stuff. Yeah, it really is. So we talked. You talked about these prophecies and the minimal facts. And like now, someone like uh, Matt Dillahunty would say those are just claims. That's not evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead. So I'm just curious your response to that. Yeah, that's that's a tough one because they all a, a lot of atheists don't want to believe anything that Christians have written, and so they'll say, "Oh, well, that was written by a Christian," and so of course we don't believe it. And, and even if we have extra biblical support. They don't want the extra biblical Christian support from the church fathers or anyone else that also supports everything that's in the Bible, purely because the church fathers heard the information and they became convinced in Christianity. So they became Christians. And so a lot of people say, well, we have to discount anyone who was, who was uh, saying that. So I would say to Matt Dillahunty, you know, as far as claims, I say, well, if, if we have support from even hostile secular sources, for our uh, minimal facts surrounding Jesus's resurrection and the way that the apostles uh, acted and were martyred, if we have extra biblical support, then we have a more solid case for Christianity and for um, the resurrection of Jesus, which is what everyone was saying back then. And we do, we have Tacitus, Josephus, Suetonius. We have a whole bunch of documents within very early years of Christianity that support um, our message, so. So I, I think we've got a compelling case. Now they can deny it um, because of course the Lord lets them do that. But but the Bible also makes it clear that he's made himself known to them. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's a great explanation. So let's just move on here. So you talked about how you wrote a paper about the moral argument or it's in under peer review right now. So I'm curious maybe your thoughts on the moral argument. Uh, what's the like the thesis of your paper? Maybe just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I, I'm really interested in the moral argument. And it, it started off because William Lane Craig has a moral argument and it basically says that, that um, if we have objective moral duties to do what's right, then there has to be a moral lawgiver. It's, it's real simple. So if we have objective moral duties, universal and objective moral duties to do what's right, there should be a moral lawgiver. Now that would be God, but, but going back first a little bit, let's talk about if we have these objective moral values and duties. And so we look at, uh, I've looked at a number of different academic studies and there's one by a guy called Kinnear who paired up with two other people and he surveyed all of the major world religions plus atheism plus human, uh, humanism, plus he surveyed people in the United Nations and he looked at their unifying documents, what each of the, the core documents for each of these different belief systems holds. And in all cases, he found these uh, this idea where, where everyone knows that we have this higher purpose and meaning, we're all seeking uh, purpose and meaning. Uh, another one is that we all follow some version of the golden rule. So do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So if, if in now that's to say, um, that we all know that we should do that, and so, but we don't necessarily do that. So we know that we should be good, and, but we don't necessarily do it. And then there's another study by a guy called Schwartz, uh, Shalom Schwartz out of Hebrew University. And he, in 2012, had what he called astonishing because he surveyed thousands of people from all over the globe. And he surveyed people on these 10 core values. And he found that in every single country, 
the top number one value is benevolence. The number one value uh, that, that people hold. Now, whether or not they are able to always be benevolent, that's another thing. That's the is versus ought idea. But he found that everyone found that they ought to be benevolent no matter what part of the world you're in. And so I look at that and I, I say, well, now let's go back to our idea of universal moral duties. And so now we can make a pretty good case that we have these universal moral duties because we can show that in every country and all of these studies, you know, those are just two, but there are other ones like the Globe study. In these studies, we find that, that people uh, know inside that they should be, say, benevolent. And the other one that uh, he found that's number two is universalist, which means being good to nature and the environment. And that corresponds also to what Kinnear and his colleagues found in that first study I mentioned. So, so there's some pretty neat things out there. And then I, yeah, I looked at, there, there's another study, the GLOBE study of, of thousands of people all around the world in 62 different societies that came out in 2004. And in that study, they looked at this thing they call humane orientation. And they found that in every single place, uh, people felt like they ought to have a, a humane orientation and that ought came in at a higher level than what they thought actually is in their society. So the ought uh, exceeds the is, which sort of means, well, we all know that we ought to be benevolent. And, and so, so it's pretty neat. And the other thing in that GLOBE study that was really kind of interesting is the countries where people are suffering the most, so the poorest countries, countries in Africa and places like that, have the highest levels of as is humane orientation. Isn't that interesting? And the ones with the yeah. lowest level are the places where they aren't suffering that much. So, so there is a purpose to suffering, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, yeah. And, and like, for example, the lowest scoring country in, in humane orientation is, guess what? Germany, West Germany. And he, mm. he separated East from West Germany and East Germany is pretty low too. So, uh, but it's not the lowest. The West Germany was the lowest. So it's, you know, very prosperous place and people have lower levels of humane orientation there. So it's yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I never heard of those studies, but that's really cool. So how would you respond to, let's say, like atheists, those moral duties that we would, or they seem objective, actually come through a process like evolution? Yeah, and I love that because in my paper, I also address that fact. So, so the idea with evolution is evolution can only be descriptive, meaning it can't give us moral prescriptions of what we ought to do. So evolution can explain what is in the country, what, you know, the as is condition of a country and what people are doing, uh, or it can, ex it can look at behaviors and say that you're predisposed by your genetics to, to have these certain behaviors, but it can't say that we ought to behave in any way. And so the, the neat thing about the moral duties, the idea of universal moral duties that transcend people and cultures, uh, and that therefore must come from a transcendent moral lawgiver, but the, the idea that we have these universal moral duties, uh, that can't be explained by what's descriptive in evolution. And so, so um, it, our moral prescriptions cannot be explained through our genetics, essentially. And so then what atheists will remark, then their follow-up is, well, uh, you know, societies have just determined that it's better to act in a benevolent way. That's why we're seeing that, because we've determined we've, you know, as if we've gotten together and had a, in a you know, a meeting. Oh yeah, we, let's be benevolent. Yeah, that, that's not how it works, you know. And so, so they'll say, well, uh, they look at, now they take out this whole moral argument and they, they dissect it. So there's a guy called Jonathan Haidt, who's a pretty famous atheist psychology professor who, who looks at this moral foundation theory. But they have this idea, they'll say, well, okay, we're gonna look at the idea of uh, our moral foundation. So they look at um, things like consequentialism, 
versus deontology, which are two different ways to look at, and consequentialism is couched under this idea of utilitarianism. So it's the idea of uh, do the greatest good for the greatest number of people, and you try to maximize a certain consequence. But the uh, so uh, also Sam Harris, what they'll do then is they'll say, okay, we want, we'll, we'll, we'll ground our objective moral values in the idea that we all want well-being. We want to achieve well-being in society. That's what Sam Harris says. So he says that every society seeks well-being, and so we ought to maximize whatever it takes to get there. So the problem, though, is you're seeing the goal at the same time as, you know, you're saying the goal is good, and it's good to seek the goal. So it's actually a circular argument. That's a, a bit of a problem with his argument. So you're basically just saying we ought to be uh, seek well-being, and, and well-being is good. So again, it's circular. Um, so that's the fault in that argument. And then if we look at the other one, which Immanuel Kant talks about, it's this idea of deontological morals. And that's saying we have moral duties. And in this case, we look at the fact that these are um, sort of innate and intuitive. And so I think that if we look at that and the deontological principle, that's what atheists don't use so much because that points to a moral lawgiver. So there's, there's the two ways to look at it. So the consequentialism is sort of faulty uh, in a way because if you use that to try to explain our grounding, if you say that, that we should be seeking well-being well and then also well-being is good, it's, it's circular. So that's the, the problem with that. Yeah, I think that's a great explanation of the moral argument. So you talked about how you had these spiritual experiences and there's these miracles. Now, my question for you is I think a lot of times that you'll hear the skeptic or the atheist say all miracles eventually get debunked. Like, you know, like there's these things that like happen, like let's say like, like an atheist say now, like we used to say, hey, the where how we got to where we are today, uh, evolution, you know, they just say it through evolution, but in the past people would say, we don't know, so it's a miracle. So it's kind of a similar thing with things we would describe as miracles today. Yeah, let me, I, I read the story kind of recently. I just read Lee Strobel's book on miracles and he pointed to some very undeniable miracles. And the best one that I can mention is a woman called Barbara Comiskey Snyder. And Barbara Comiskey, she was at that point, she wasn't Barbara Comiskey Snyder, she was just Barbara Comiskey. But in, in the early 1980s, she had a very debilitating case of multiple sclerosis. And it had gotten to such a point that it had completely crippled her where she couldn't walk, her hands and her feet were mangled. For seven years, she was in a wheelchair and she was barely able to breathe. Her lungs had lost almost all of their capacity and everything was gone for her. And, and she was known as their church. Uh, you know, She was always at her church in her wheelchair and she lived in, in Illinois. And what happened was she was in her bed in her room and all of a sudden she heard my child get up and walk. And she actually was able to felt her body, the atrophy in her legs, everything started coming back together. Her, wow. her muscles were restored. She immediately got up and actually ran to see her parents to, to celebrate what had happened. And so that night at five o'clock, they had a service in her church and she showed up there walking down the aisle and the entire church just stood up and started cheering. And, and that's documented in the, the local newspaper. Uh, it's, it's got, there's some other places that you can find that from the time. And she's still around today telling her story. So she was bedridden and gone for all this time and like that. And so that's a miracle that I think is a, a modern day miracle that's really exciting. Yeah, it's amazing, no doubt. So why, so this is kind of still in this topic. So it's more of a 
more, I don't know if you call it a moral question, but why do you, would you say that God would heal some people like her, but not heal other people? Let's say like a uh, child with cancer, or, you know, let's take a very dramatic case here, something like that. That's the hardest question. That's that's the question yeah. that atheists get us with, and, and it's the it, it's so difficult to deal with. I mean, I think about my own husband. He's got he's got some pain in his his feet in the back, and he's got some issues with his spine, like the back of his neck, and uh, and it, it doesn't go away. He's a good Christian. He's a he says prayers. He's does all that kind of good stuff. And why does he have that? But yet someone like Barbara Snyder gets to be healed. And I think we just have to realize that we give God what's God's. It's God's sovereign decisions. If he wants to heal some and not heal others, uh, we just sort of have to figure out what what he wants us to do. What, you know, what, what can we do given all of the, the different constraints and situations that he puts us in? And we have to count on him to, to, to uh, give us the right situations to enhance our spirits. And he must have thought to himself, I'm going to, you know, one of the reasons why Barbara Snyder had what happened was she, uh, a prayer request went out on the radio and all people started praying for her. And then suddenly this whole situation happened. So this became very public up in the Chicago area. But, uh, but the, so there were, that was just speaking to the power of prayer. But if I look back at other people who've, who, you know, what is it, the situation where you see these kids dying or the kids washing up on the beach or, or, you know, these horrible situations like that, uh, or people dying what seems like needlessly in, in terrible situations in different parts of the world. And people even living in North Korea, why is that awful place allowed to exist? It's, it's I mean, uh, horrific. And so we look at that kind of situation and we just have to realize that uh, this whole life is just temporary. We're just in a stepping stone. Uh, what we do here is pur purely to build our spirits. And so he's going to put us in certain situations to enhance that possibility. And so that's why, you know, we see the most suffering in places like Africa, but they also happen to be really strong human beings there as far as their spirits. And that's mm -hmm. what we saw with that, what I mentioned before with the humane orientation. Some of the best people are coming out of some of the ho most horrific circumstances. Yeah, definitely. I actually went to Zambia and they're, some of the nicest people I've ever met, much nicer than us Americans. We're pretty, can be pretty rough sometimes. Um, so moving on, you talked earlier about these prophecies of Christ, these prophecies that are fulfilled. So I think a lot of the time when you present these to a skeptic, they'll say, well, doesn't it, isn't it possible that they just sculpted a figure that would fulfill these prophecies, you know? Something like, you know, they always talk about the virgin birth thing, you know, about how the original word is just a young woman and how they could have just, so what's, I'm just curious on your thoughts on that, the idea that they could have just sculpted a figure, a Christ-like figure that would fulfill these prophecies. Yeah, that's a, and, and just going back to what you said, it said seed of a woman in the book of Genesis. And so the idea of, a, you know, generally people come from the seed of a man, which is, you know, instead of the seed of a woman. So, so going back to the idea of the virgin birth and Isaiah 9, 6, where that was foretold, um, how did how did all that come together? Well, how I would answer that is I would say, what were the motivations of the early church followers to to make up a story? Did did they have a motivation? Is there some sort of material gain they got by doing that? And when we realized that Christianity wasn't even given legal status until the year three thirteen, and Christians were randomly persecuted all throughout, you know, in in many under many emperors between the year that Jesus had died and. 313, we have to ask, there's there's no motivation to go back to the Old Testament and try to craft a story. And number two, 
the Jewish people weren't expecting that sort of Messiah. They actually had to have their eyes open. They were expecting a rich and powerful Messiah to come and topple Rome and, and to uh, bring them out in a victorious manner. They really didn't understand Isaiah 53 and, and that kind of thing. And, and I make the argument that Satan also didn't understand Isaiah 53 because he wouldn't have allowed what happened to happen if he, if he had any clue of what was going to happen when, when Jesus uh, was crucified. Yeah, definitely. So I guess this is kind of very similar to what you just talked about talked about here, but how can we trust the New Testament? How do we know that what we have in our Bible today is the same as what they wrote back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s? I have a two-pronged two way to look at that. In fact, yesterday I interviewed Craig Blomberg on my channel, who's written a really good book on the reliability of the New Testament. But I would the first thing I would say is, let's look at what Bart Ehrman says. So, so Bart Ehrman is a very famous agnostic who's been giving Christianity a hard time up in the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He wrote a book that, that is called um, Misquoting Jesus. And so mm -hmm. I decided I was going to write a review of that book. And so I started looking through the book and I found that there was this, there were three different versions of the book. And in the second version, he said, he went through and he, he, you know, looked at every single passage in the New Testament and he cast doubt on a couple passages he thought were inserted by scribes. And he said it's a game, a telephone tag and all this kind of stuff. But then he admitted in his second edition, which he retract, he pulled it out of the third edition for some strange reason. But in the second edition, he admitted that the core tenets of Christianity are in the Bible, the one that we have today, the New Testament we have uh is this has the same core tenets that they would have had in the original copies. And so the main beliefs that we have, such as Jesus was resurrected, uh, would be the exact same thing that we saw back then. And a second way I'd look at that is I'd look at Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, they don't contain the New Testament because they were around um, around 150 years prior and they were they were uh, taken care of by some some Jewish people. But in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have the entire book of Isaiah preserved. And we have enough in the Old Testament that points to Jesus that if we only had the Old Testament, we're good to go. I, I think that we can we can just look to that and we can look at the Isaiah, uh, I mean, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls were so well preserved. This is how caring people took of scriptures back in these, you know, over thousands of years. They were so well preserved that they noted that what was in the Dead Sea Scrolls was completely the same as, I mean, just about almost perfectly aligned with what's in the Old Testament that we use today. So just the fact that that we see that, and those those scrolls were discovered in the 1940s, in case people were wondering about that. So, and that yeah, speaks to that. Jesus said, if the, if they should, if people uh, are quiet, that the stones would cry out. And so we're starting to see all of these little pieces of evidence coming up, like the ossuary of Caiaphas suddenly made it, reared its ugly head. <laughs> seeing yeah. these little things coming out in these days, which is pretty neat. Definitely. So this is kind of on a similar ground. Talking about, let's talk the death, the deaths of the Christian martyrs, the early disciples who died for their faith. So how do we know that they died i know that um there, i just don't there's not a whole lot of extra biblical references at least according to my knowledge at least well there, i think there's some but not as like there's no maybe there is a lot actually i'll just ask you so where do we see uh confirmation of the apostles martyrdom that's that's a great that's a great point. Let me um actually does not I think about it. I'm noticing it's getting really dark in my room. So let me just quickly flip this light on and I'm gonna there grab I've got it in some papers right in front of me. So one second. Okay. 
and hold on. All right, let's see. Just trying to see where I've got this all documented. <laughs> I just found a couple of my my blog articles. So I've I've got how do we know Jesus resurrected in the New Testament is reliable, and then I've got this other one that's called uh, that I printed out that's called the stones of the Old Testament have cried for the in support of our Messiah. Um, so let me just look through here real quick. Yeah, you're good. Don't worry about it. Let's see where I've got some of this stuff. Oh, actually, while I'm while I'm doing that, let me just mention something else that I just found that, that is pretty interesting. Besides from the ossuary inscriptions, we've got some other things that have been supported, like the pools of Bethesda and Siloam. Uh, Jesus healed a paralytic at the pool of Bethesda and Siloam, so those have been uncovered archaeologically. Uh, the uh, site of Jesus' trial by Pontius Pilate has also been identified. Uh, they called it a kishel or a prison. It was discovered in Jerusalem's old city by excavators. Uh, Quirinius, a lot of people will try to say that Quirinius uh, was supposedly only in 6 AD uh, uh, in power, but actually we found some evidence that's archaeological that, that he actually was proconsul of Syria and Cilicia from 11 BC to 4 BC. So, so we also have that. So the idea that he called for this census to be conducted uh, is consistent with the timing of Jesus's birth, which people estimate is around 4 BC. Um, I'm just trying to find my other evidence. You're good. It came from, you know what it is with the, with the uh, and I'm, I'm just not seeing it right in front of me, but it was some of the early church fathers basically who talked about some of the persecutions. Uh, Tacitus also pointed to some of the different persecutions and Tacitus was very hostile towards uh, Christian. So Tacitus said, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, and even in Rome, where all things are hideous and shameful from every part of the world, find their center and become popular. Nero, and then I'm skipping a little bit, um, Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft on a car. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion for it was not as it seemed for the public good, but to the glut one man's cruelty and they were being destroyed. And then we have in the uh, um, Suetonius basically said, Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome who instigated by Christus never ceased to cause unrest. Uh, the Talmud and Sanhedrin, they also made mention of uh, 
how they hanged Jesus the Nazarene. So those are just a few other things. Now, um, but and then Pliny the Younger, he also concurred with some of the treatment that the Christians were getting back then. Um, oh wait, here we go. So I've got uh, Tertullian basically said uh, that Christians were the cause of every public disaster, every misfortune. <laughs> so we've got some other awful things. Um, I think it was Polycarp and Eusebius who who mentioned some of this stuff, and uh, but I I still don't have the exact right document for that, so I, I might have to come back to that one. Yeah, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think you're totally right there. I guess we'll just we'll just move on. So the next question I have for you is more of a theological question. It's about what Paul says in first Corinthians. I'm just curious your thoughts on this. I'll just read the passage. So it's first Corinthians. Oh, I didn't write the chapter down. I have the quote though. It's verses 34 and 35 of, I don't remember what chapter it is, but it okay. says it's just about women in churches. So it says women should remain silent in churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. So I know that, that's not very common now in church today. It's very, it's a lot more equal. So I'm just curious your thoughts on that passage. I think, and I think that's first Timothy two twelve, And so I think so it's that, in Timothy two. Yeah. And yeah. So, so that's a, that's a really controversial passage that a lot of the church leaders through the centuries have used to make sure that women aren't uh, given leadership roles in churches and especially not senior pastor sorts of roles. And so, so that's, and it's even in my particular church where I attend, uh, women aren't in those roles. And I think possibly it's because of that. So interpretations vary quite a bit on that. And it's a really contentious issue, especially if you're a woman who'd like to be in a leadership role in a church. Uh, mm -hmm. That would be an issue that would that would get to you. But I went and I looked that up today and I found this website under Junia. It was, I forgot the exact name of the website, but it's like the Junia Project or something like that. And they were explaining it. And they actually said that the Greek word that's for authority that's in there, uh, that that particular Greek word only appears once in the entire Bible. And so it's a it's a strange word. So we look at what's the translation of this word. And some are translated as the misuse of authority. So it's saying that that women should not misuse authority. And I think that's pretty clear. It's a, it's a good statement for us. And another thing I would look at is how Paul himself treated women. And so he actually exalted women and he worked with women. He worked with uh, Priscilla and he worked with Junia and he worked with different people in the early church. And so they were put in some leadership positions and they were given some key roles. So I would say that just looking at what he was doing and, and taking that verse in the context of what was going on, what probably was going on was in the particular church where he was um, sharing his message. Maybe they were having some problems with some of the women in that particular church. So he might've said, you know, women, you're maybe they're talking a bit much. Um, I've also heard the interpretation that this is saying that they you know, giving women more time for for prayer and and that kind of thing is pretty important because uh, because in those days when Paul wrote that, women in many cases were not getting educated in schools uh, and they weren't getting that kind of time. So so this is saying that that the women should be given more time for that kind of thing. If you look at the entire First Timothy instead of just two twelve, so yeah, that's a great answer. Um, so we'll keep going here. So. You have, I think, believe like twenty thousand followers on Twitter, and you you receive a lot of just rough comments from atheists. I get I get some, but I mean, obviously, I'm not as big as you, and you, I'm sure you, you get a lot. And I just I was just wondering, 
first off, how does this affect you? Like when you just receive these just hateful comments, they're just like, oh, you're stupid, you're blind, you're ignorant, or it can even get a lot worse than that. So I'm just curious about that. Yeah, that's thank you so much for asking me that. I, you know, I, I here's what happened. I came to Twitter in 2014, and I had really not known any atheists at all. I, I knew of atheists, and I knew that we had a relative. My husband had an uncle who who passed away kind of around them, but I didn't really know the man, and and he was an atheist. So I had no experience with them, and then I started hashtagging, you know, Christianity and that kind of thing, and the atheists just sort of came down on me, and I thought, well, what is this going on? And then my pastor got on Twitter. And the and he, I remember him sending me a direct message saying, you know, I see you're on Twitter, and what is with these atheists? <laughs> going down on him too, and so so I, I said, I don't know what's going on with them. I, I don't know, you know. And at first I was thinking this is so strange, and so then I befriended a few atheists, and I got I kind of figured out, oh well, you know, they're they're just like us, although they've got some challenges in some cases. They had they were they had uh, been hurt by the church and that kind of stuff, but. What happened over the years is, is uh, in 2016, I started writing blogs and I wrote my first one as a response to an atheist because I thought his blog, he, he thought his blog was a very good quality one. And I read it and I thought, well, that's just, that's not even a good argument. It's terrible. <laughs> and so I, I wrote, I wrote a response and uh, I started writing responses to a bunch of different atheists. I would go find their stuff and write responses to them. And, uh, and, and then I started even writing responses to Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Matt Dillahunty, you mentioned him and uh, Tracy yeah. Harris. I, I've, I've dug up Mr. Oz atheist, uh, a guy called Kaimatai. I, I find all of these atheist engineer was one of them. I, I find atheists either if they're online or there. Uh, Richard Carrier is another one. I actually did a debate with him. But then around that same time, a couple of years ago, I decided to go onto YouTube and uh, and try to promote Christianity. So I have this blog and, and YouTube now. And I think I, I got some atheist attention. And sometimes that doesn't work out in a very positive way. Uh, since 2016, they've been going after my, my employment. Uh, they just recently sent a, a, an email about somebody called Scientist Mel to my my uh, provost trying to get me fired. Uh, they they basically have been doing a lot of stuff like that. So I I get these I get this feedback from um, from my employer, and he said, you know, I know this is your private account, and I he goes, I don't know why these atheists keep coming after you. Uh, they tag in my my employer too. They'll tag him in Twitter and say that I'm an awful teacher and shouldn't be put in a classroom and and that kind of thing. So so no, I've they've heaped abuse on me, and uh, and why is that? I don't know. Uh, sometimes I do say things that are kind of provocative. Um, I know that, and I used to, and I have in the past said some tweets that I wish I never, never said, like I said something pretty negative about Christopher Hitchens in 2016 that um, that I probably shouldn't have said. Um, and so just uh, going back to that, I wish I could take some of those back, but I can't. And I've unfortunately uh, cultivated a following of some pretty negative people. <laughs> so yeah. they follow me, even though I have them all, I've got 700 people blocked, but from behind blocks, these people still are tracking my daily Twitter file and you know, so it's 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 crazy. I don't know why that you know there's other people who are believers. I'm not sure, but I I, I know I'm not alone. I've seen other people get, uh, you know, a, a, they've also been treated in, in pretty poor ways. And I can also say, just in fairness to the atheist community, there are some among them who are really good people. They're upstanding. They've got good morals. They they wouldn't put up with any of this kind of contacting my employer sort of stuff. So. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, I think it's really sad when it gets into the first. And I think Christians are guilty of this too. Sometimes that it really we shouldn't be getting personal with each other. We shouldn't like calling like 
your boss. Like that's just not, it's not excusable. Um, so when you look at their objections to the faith, they always talk about, it. do you think it's more of a, they have, it's more of in, in the heart issue with God rather than in the head? Yeah, I, I think it's a, I think it's an emotional objection rather than a rational objection. Because I think if you look at the rational evidence surrounding the crucifixion and the resurrection, and you look at just the minimal facts, the only and best explanation of all of those minimal facts is that Jesus resurrected. There, there's no other alternative uh, to, to explain all of the pieces of evidence that we have. And so, so I think that when people look at that, instead of accepting that, they say, well, you know, I really don't want there to be a God. And so they'll do what it takes to suppress the information that's very rationally presented to them by multiple people if they look into the evidence. So there's, there's a lot out there that gives us evidence for, for Christianity and for Jesus's resurrection. It's just a matter of taking a look at it. Yeah, definitely. So how would you respond to someone? Cause I see this a lot in just replies to tweets. It's often said now there is no evidence for God. There's no evidence for God. So how would you respond to someone that says there's no evidence for God? I, well, one thing I think we could point to some of the miracles of today and some of the situations that occur. Um, we could point to the idea of, I, you know, I, I would go back to the moral argument probably and say that that's one piece of evidence, but two other ones that I haven't mentioned yet are the cosmological argument. And it says that everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe has a beginning. We found that uh, time, space, and matter has a start date of about 14 billion years ago. And so therefore the universe, time, space, and matter has a cause. And so what existed prior to the Big Bang which was about 14 billion years ago, had to be timeless or eternal, uh, had to be immaterial and, uh, and had to transcend, basically be transcendent. And, and so we take an, uh, and had to be very powerful and able to, to start inflation from basically the size of a pinhead. How did that possibly happen? And so the idea is God would be behind that. God is the ultimate uh, timeless immaterial being. And so that's why, you know, when Einstein, I, I think this is really funny. In 1917, so Einstein comes out with his theory of relativity. And around 1917, he created this fudge factor because he wanted, he wanted a static universe because he realized that if the universe had a start date, there had to be something that started it. And the something couldn't be material uh, and, and couldn't be um, bounded by time. So he realized that there were theological implications for the, the universe in a beginning. And so in 1925, when a Belgian Catholic came up with this idea of the Big Bang after making observations in the Hubble telescope, uh, Einstein still was in denial with his cosmological constant fudge factor. And so then he went and he visited the, the Hubble telescope and he looked through it and he made the same observations that Lemaitre had made. And he realized in 1931 that he was going to have to get rid of his fudge factor and that the universe was not static and that there were theological implications, but he decided he was going to suppress those. And, uh, and he never mentioned the fudge factor again. And he said that that was his biggest error, you know, because he had his bias. And then there's the idea that there's another person that does a lot of research that's called Hugh Ross. And Hugh actually calculated out the chances for the Earth being in this exact same conditions that we're in. And it's, it's like something like one in 10 to the 176 power that the, the conditions that we had to match to be in a life-sustaining planet. Uh, for example, the size of the moon 
relative to our size had to be exactly how it is basically uh the distance of us from the sun the fact that we have this gravitational pull from jupiter uh, that helps capture a lot of the meteors that could have destroyed us and so there's there's a lot of different conditions um in habitable zones here's here that we uh, as the earth have overcome and hugh actually has looked at there there are apparently around three thousand other planets that have uh, kind of similar conditions to ours, but they've examined them and none of the other planets have more than two habitable zones. And we've met so far identified 10 habitable zones. And so, so I would say that's the idea of the teleological argument and uh, speaking to our design and the fact that because our design is so miraculous, essentially, that there probably is a designer. And so that's the, another argument for God. So, yeah, definitely. So we have these amazing arguments for God, for Christianity. It's really, when I looked into it, I was like, I wasn't expecting much. And I looked at it, I'm like, wow, there's a lot here. It really surprised me. So we have all this evidence. So why would you, why do you think so many people still reject the gospel? I think, well, I think that people in, in this isn't, I think there are people in different faiths who honestly think they're following the correct faith. And there are, there are many people who are sort of apathetic where they just don't really investigate. They don't care. They don't wanna have what they call a sky daddy guiding their lives. So, so there, there's, a, there's a group of people who are faithful in their faiths, for example, Hindus or Buddhists or people who are Muslims who believe that they're following the correct faith and maybe haven't looked into Christianity too much at all. Uh, very good chance that that be go, could be going on. And then there's a, a group of people who are say atheist or agnostic who have actively rejected what they know is true. And so what happens when people reject God, and they might do it for different reasons. They might do it for emotional reasons. Maybe they've been hurt by people in the church, or maybe they've had a health issue or a family member's had a health issue, or maybe they just, uh, they're doing something that they don't wanna have, uh, that God would call them out for. They're doing something immoral <laughs> that God would call them out for. So, so according to Romans, what they'll do is they, they suppress the knowledge and then God actually spiritually blinds them so that even if you give them all of this information, it still won't make sense to them. And so, so that's what happens. And for those kind of people, all we can really do is just pray that, that somehow they get that glimmer of light and they, they suddenly decide that they're going to come to the truth. Yeah, it's really, that's a great answer. I really appreciate that. So my final question for you is obviously most of your works in terms of the Christian realm is in apologetics. And I obviously it's pretty similar for myself. So what would you say the role of apologetics is in bringing people to Christ? I think the, the idea of 1 Peter 3.15 that basically says we're supposed to uh, always be ready to give an answer to people who inquire of us. So so when we get, you mentioned people on Twitter who, who come to me and they, they're very hostile. Now those people, I, I think that we take the approach that both Paul and some of the apostles did where we sort of just wipe the sand from our feet and go to a different town. But, but for the people who are honestly asking us questions and, and they seem like they really want to know the answer and they're, they're being, you know, showing us a, a decent amount of kindness, I think that we need to be ready to, to give them a good answer. And I think that speaking from what Proverbs says, we're supposed to spend our entire lives seeking more wisdom and understanding of God. And so when we do that, when people come and they challenge our faith, we'll have the answers ready for them. And I think that's the most important thing. So as, as an apologetic, per, you know, a person practicing apologetics, we should 
learn as much as we possibly can about God. Uh, and then when people approach us and ask us questions, we have ready answers that we can give them that hopefully uh, lead them in the right direction. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I have, there's a couple of questions here. Do you want to mind if I just read them and we can oh, sure. discuss them a little bit? All right. So Darth Kalki says people reject what they know is true, the gospel. Um, what about people who are honestly unconvinced? Um, people who are honestly unconvinced. I, I do know that there's there are a lot of people who, and I think that goes back to we have to. I think we have to to figure out that kind of question. We have to go back to what the what the gospels and what the um, other books, the epistles, and those books in the Bible basically say. And today I was reading up a bunch of different passages concerning people who who are atheists, and uh, a lot of it is that they 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 think. Actually, that's that's a good way to put it. So Romans in the book of Romans, it tells us that people, everyone's been given information concerning God. It's very clearly stated in Romans one that everyone has that information, but some choose to suppress that information and then God basically spiritually blinds them. And so at that point, after you've been spiritually blinded, they might think I'm honestly looking for God, but it's just not making sense to me. So I think if those people uh, really truly desire to find the truth, I think if they say some prayers and just open their eyes a little bit and just put one little step in towards faith and see what happens, because it, it goes back to one of the, the scenes in the Gospels where Jesus was in the boat with his apostles and they were totally worn out from fishing. And he said to them, he said, uh, you know, just throw the net out there. And they're like, oh gosh, you're so tired. And they're just, they're not going to catch anything. They haven't caught anything all day. He's like, just put the net over there. And they, he, they cast the net out and then it got so heavy with 153 fish, if I recall that correctly, that they could barely pull the thing up onto the, the, the boat. And so it's kind of the same idea with, with atheists. If just have a teeny bit of faith, maybe say a prayer and God will just at some point open your eyes in such a way that it's just absolutely beautiful. You'll receive more bounty than you even had asked for. Yeah, 100%. I like to listen to some Frank Turek videos sometimes. And I'm, I think it's Turek, but yeah, regardless. Yeah, and, Turek. And, and he talks about, and he'll go in these campuses and people will ask about, well, what about people who are honestly unconvinced? He'll have this giant audience of a thousand people and it'll be like, I know everyone is a Christian. You have someone in your head, like little Timmy, who's an atheist, but you want to come to Christ. And he's like, raise your hand if that person's on an honest truth seeking quest for the truth, whatever, wherever it leads. And like, two people will raise their hand out of a thousand people. And I think I agree with you. Most people aren't, when people are honestly on that search, they find Christianity, but if not, like God will respect their wish and they'll be blinded. So there's one more question uh, from Silly. She says, an atheist told me that 2 million Israelites cannot go through the desert because there are no fossils or evidence of their burial. So, I mean, you have any thoughts on that? Um, well, I, I think that, the, you know, I'm not sure if it exactly says two million Israelites for one. I'm not sure if they actually give us a number in the Bible that's that says two million. But, but I do think that uh, you know what exactly are what is the evidence that we can find of the Old Testament? I think if we realize that the Old Testament is the documentation that many historians use to to figure out what was going on in the ancient Near East, and so the atheist makes the assumption that the Old Testament is completely invalid but yet historians even use that information. So I think if we, we put some trust in what it says in the Old Testament and understand that the Old Testament and the New Testament were written over three, uh, 
over, I'm sorry, in three different continents uh, by over 40 authors in three languages and, uh, and um, over 1500 years. And it's somehow remarkably coherent and, and is pointing to Jesus. I think when we realize all of that stuff came together in a very coherent way, I think that gives us some support that was God directed. Um, as far as the evidence from coming out of, I think that the evidence will start presenting itself more as people start doing more archaeological digs. And so I, I, I wouldn't say that the, what they would say, the argument from silence is, you know, is, is to say that we will never find archaeological evidence. I think just maybe to date, we don't have archaeological evidence for, for that particular event. Yeah, I agree with you completely. It's an argument from silence. They're basically saying we can't see this. We can't see the physical evidence. So it must have not happened. But I think one thing to note here with this question is that I don't know how much evidence you'd be expecting to find because in terms of physical archaeological evidence, because this is an event that happened like three to 4,000 years ago. I can't remember the an exact dating that they'd estimate. So we're not going to find a lot of evidence in the first place. And these people, as they're wandering through the desert, they're nomads. They don't have time to make massive grave sites that we could uncover. They'd probably be like small portable graves. So I think that you wouldn't expect a lot in the first place. Yeah. And so, I, I like, for example, I walked my dog this morning. Now, what archaeological evidence is there that I went out on this particular path and walked my dog? There's absolutely yeah. no evidence. So there's there's nothing to show. You know, 3,000 years from now, did, did uh, SJ walk her dog at, on the 16th of June? Well, who's going <laughs> to, you can't find that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's all we have. I just want to say thank you so much for coming on, SJ. I really appreciate your time. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's been it's been great. And I just see, I just switched over so I can see the chat. So sorry for the people in the chat. I haven't been keeping up with that. But, um, but I appreciate you bringing me on. This has been really fun. Yeah, it's awesome. So if you're listening and you don't follow SJ on social media, there's a link to her blog and her Twitter and I think her YouTube channel is on the description. And yeah, and that's all we have for today. So I hope everyone learned something. And remember, our new slogan, big questions need good answers. So thank you all for tuning in today. Thank you.